evening, everyone. And uh, thank you for coming. Welcome to the Syracuse Group's celebration of the 56th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tom. Why don't we open this meeting with a moment of silence to think about where we might not be if two fellows hadn't met 56 years ago tomorrow and discovered something that could help folks like uh, you and me. Thank you. And for those of you who wish, the Serenity Prayer, God. It's uh, customary before most meetings <coughs> to read the preamble, but at this meeting there's something that I like to read, which is a quote that's attributed to Bill Wilson that I heard from a fellow when he was present at a meeting in New York City when Bill said this, and he was able to recite it by memory, but no matter how many times I read this, I just can't ever get it down, so uh, I'd like to read this for you. And what Bill Wilson said was, all this started in 1934, when a never-loving God looked down upon this earth, upon a group of people that no one could help and no one could understand, the outcasts of society, the drunks. So in his infinite wisdom, he set a table, and on the table he laid a message and a lighted candle. And whoever was to sit down at the table first was to pick up the message and the candle and go out into the world carrying the message and the light where there was suffering and darkness in other alcoholics' lives. As most everybody here knows, Bill Wilson was the uh, fella who picked up that message and that candle and on June 10th of 1935, he brought the message in the light into the life of Dr. Bob, and the genesis of AA was there. It's also customary at meetings such as this to read an excerpt from Chapter 5 out of the big book, but uh, you can go to 364 other meetings during the year and have somebody read that to you, or go home and read it yourself. <laughs> uh, it's a lot nicer to uh, maybe take three or four minutes and give it to our speaker. Tonight, uh, we uh, once again gone down south and imported, sparing every expense, and imported another speaker from the state of Florida and uh, be graciously accepted and arrived on time. And uh, he's here to share a little bit of his experience, strength, and hope in this fellowship. Would you uh, welcome Moped John, please? doing a lot of other things and keeps on drinking. I'm not a circuit speaker. I talk about once every six months someplace to reveal things to myself mostly. Jacques is pretty short. These talks were originally developed 
if a customer in AA to convince <coughs> newcomers. When these guys got up there and talked, why everybody in the room, with a very few exceptions, would be people who were deciding whether or not they were alcoholics. So uh, the speaker would tell what happened to him as a an alcoholic in the hope that somebody in the room would identify the things that happened and say, aha, you know, I kissed on the rug, I'm an alcoholic too, you know, and uh, so I'll join AA. They're recruiting statements. I don't think that uh, today in AA recruiting statements have to be made from podiums. And the recruiting statements probably be made by some individuals talking to other individuals. Fellow well, comes in, he has a piece of paper, 15 spaces on it. He's got to get a signature on those 15 spaces. The judge says you're either a criminal or an alcoholic. The guy says, What's it to you? He just says, Well, what's it to me is that you go to state prison or you go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, which are you, a criminal or an alcoholic? So I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> He comes roaring in here and he says, I'm not an alcoholic, that just sent me here, you know. So uh, when they said that to me, I said, well, I won't sign the paper, you go to prison. How would you like that? However, that's not what I'm supposed to say. What I'm supposed to say is that uh, a lot of things happen to me when drinking. And uh, what I frequently say is that uh, if I had a uniform, if I was green, I made a decoration, would prove I was a real alcoholic. There, there. They'd be with the DWI and three Oakley clusters, a BWI, bicycling while intoxicated. <laughs> and I recently remembered that I should have gotten another BWI, but they didn't have a law at that time, so they arrested me for not having a stern light on my boat. It was boating while intoxicated. Uh, and of course, the wound medal, the purple rectum. In order to get it, you have to have diarrhea every single day for one full year. I have it with three little Clusters. So, consequently, I'm a real alcoholic. I didn't get that way in my diapers. I got drunk the first time at, at the age of 19. I was in the service. I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a place that was as safe as any place in the world because it's the center of the country almost. And my commanding officer was the guy who commanded Pearl Harbor when the Jets bombed it. And uh, so they put him there, too, so he wouldn't be confronted with any problems. <laughs> and I got drunk at a dance, and I awoke the next morning in a hotel. Sleep, that another fellow myself had rented. And there was a knock at the door. I made the mistake of answering it. I opened the door. Looked out. There were about five blonde kids, like that, in front of the door, all with blue eyes. And the biggest blonde head said, I'd like to welcome you to our family. We have a beautiful quarter section of land for you to plow in North Dakota, some damn place. And all of us, I'm listening to him. It turned out I was engaged to the middle blonde head. And I said, thank you very much, I must get dressed. And I closed the door and I could get dressed. And I went out another door, down the elevator, back to the base, volunteered for combat, was gone 24 hours, that was the end of that. <laughs> I uh, knew then, from that incident, that I better not drink a hell of a lot. And I didn't. Doesn't matter how much trouble I went to avoid drinking, But eventually, I became a half-assed success, I thought myself to be one. And in order to get what I thought I wanted, I had to do a lot of lying. I was in the engineering business before I was in the aviation business. And 
I guess flying at luncheon at an expense account for restaurants. And I sit there with some executive from some aerospace company. And he'd tell me a few lies about the main tremendous contributions he was making. And I would make, tell him a few lies about how his position could be improved if he hired my firm. And uh, by the time we were both drunk as hell, I'd have a contract. And I didn't know that the one drink I was taking, and I didn't like the taste and all that business, and I didn't like what it did to me, but the one drink at lunch was the two drinks at lunch, and the three drinks at lunch, and the four drinks at lunch, and then the one drink after work, and the two drinks after work, and all that kind of thing, was getting me addicted. And I became addicted very rapidly. And uh, soon it was impossible for me to function without alcohol. And I realized that. In 1969, I had a clear picture. See, I went to California in 1951 to build my fortune. I had a plan. I had half a tank of gas, a 1941 Studebaker, and $3 when I got there. In 1969, I achieved what I set out to do. I was sitting in a very large home on the top of cliff in Malibu, California. And I owned the home. I owned a couple of cars, a yacht, an airplane. And some other stuff. Property around LA, property around Nevada, property around New York State, up away from here. Lots of stocks and bonds and things like that. And a wife, very pretty, 13 years younger than myself. Two beautiful children. Full set. One blue eyed, blonde haired boy. One lovable little dark haired, brown eyed girl. life was good. Well, maybe not so good. I said, maybe life was not so good. There were little problems, details. Like I weighed 275 pounds and I couldn't walk 100 yards without falling down. And that pretty wife I had was up in Tahoe with the credit cards running around with a blackjack dealer from Haras in one of the cars. And I was tending to cry all the time for no reason. And I threw up every morning and during the course of the day. But something wasn't quite right. I didn't understand why it wasn't quite right. And the kids treated me, you know, strangely. Like, it was like they had invisible barge poles, ten feet long. And they'd put the barge pole out, carefully measure the distance between me and them, and say, Hi, Daddy, and duck. Well, something wasn't quite right. So on the day they put the man on the moon, I stopped drinking. That day. And I changed my life entirely. I concluded that the reason I was drinking was because of the pressures of my business and the pressures of what I was doing and the wife that did not understand me, so I had divested myself of my business interests at a very large profit before I stopped drinking, incidentally. And after stopping drinking, I divested myself of my wife. And I moved to a very nice retirement community, a very quiet retirement community called Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> and I bought a house in Boulder City, about 20 minutes out of Vegas, near the dam. 
and I did not drink. But I continued to weigh 275 pounds. I continued to have random diarrhea. It's very hard on the cars. It was terrible. And I did not drink for 90 days. And it was terrible. And I couldn't eat in certain restaurants because I did not fit between the stationary chairs and the counter. You know, I had to pick it out. I had to have a place where you could pull a chair back and sit down and kind of reach. When you dine with the devil, dine with a long spoon, you know. And uh, so I went to a doctor in Vegas, probably the leading medical man for the correction of the physical symptoms of alcoholism in this country. It was very expensive for that time. It was 400 bucks a visit, each visit, three times a week for 90 days. Anyway, he took care of all the stars who had little problems getting on stage, Sammy and and some other folks and me I had a lot of problems getting anywhere so I went in to see him and he said well took a physical he said well you're not dying yet but you will very quickly and I can fix you because you're young enough but here's what I have to tell you you can never take another drink for as long as you live and I said I know that and he said, so you'll have to join AA. And I said, the magic words that I've heard 10,000 times since I've been in AA. Doctor, you don't understand. <laughs> I just handed his receptionist on the way in. Alcoholics paid their bills on the way in to see this doctor, not on the way out. He knew us very well. Four hundred bucks. Help me, I screamed. Help me, help me. Now let me tell you how you're going to do that, doctor. So anyway, he said, well, suit yourself. We'll try it. And we did. And I didn't drink, <coughs> and I took no tranks or anything else, no massive doses of vitamins. He had a, a dietary program and an exercise program, which I uh, did religiously. Ninety days later, I was Marlboro Man, and a whole lot poorer, 185 pounds of solid, well canned by the desert sun, muscle. I went for my last visit. 400 bucks. Hi, baby. How's everything going? And I go, take physical. Says, you're all fixed? But you can never take another drink for as long as you live. Not one. Not a teaspoonful. You're going to have to go to AA, John. By now, I knew the magic words by heart. Thank you, doctor. You don't understand. You do your job, I'll do mine. I don't like to drink. I don't want to drink. I don't need to drink. I will never drink again. Suit yourself, John. I left. That was six months after I'd taken the last drink. A year later, on my way to get the haircut, my haircut in Boulder City, there was a dump bar, only one in Boulder City. That's one of the reasons I moved there. I didn't have liquor when I moved there. I didn't drink beer or any of those soft drinks, you know, wine and things like that. I drank bonded granddad, hundred proof vodka, and things of that sort. And they had liquor. So I thought I'd go in and see what it was like. And I went in and I saw what it was like. And I had a vodka on the rug to clarify my vision, and I went to get my hair cut. What happened? Why did I take that drink? 
year and a half without a drink. No problems. None of any kind whatsoever. No financial problems. No sexual problems. They get to the good place to treat sexual problems. Believe me, if you got money, you'll treat any sexual problem you might have. <laughs> no problems. Why did I take that drink? Was it pain? What the hell was going on here? And that's what this outfit is all about. It is not about the compulsion that we feel to take a drink after we start drinking. Because the compulsion, when I was drinking, I was a daily drinker. After taking that vodka, it was five more years before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I was drinking, there was no, no force on the face of this earth that could stop me. Nothing could stop me. I even got arrested for DWI. What? Four times during that period of time. The longest I spent in jail was 12 minutes. The longest I spent between drinks for being arrested was maybe an hour. Nothing stopped me when the compulsion was on. What this outfit is about is the obsession. After a period of dryness, it makes us take that drink. Why do we think it will make us feel better? Why? Because it will. That feeling of ease and comfort, Ricky Ticky Tavy, is described in the big book, and I recommend that reading. If you have trouble sleeping when you first come in here, read the big book, and you'll have no trouble sleeping. That feeling, I would feel better by taking a drink, persisted. almost to well, right through insanity that's for sure but very close to death that's what this outfit is about to complete my so-called drunk log it goes something like this I became what's called a pseudo or artificial periodic after the taking that drink of vodka at the recreation tavern in Boulder City, Nevada such a person drinks for a certain period of time and knows it's bad for him, looks in the mirror, sees what's happening, sees what's happening, and then stops drinking. At that time, the way I stopped drinking was to drive out into the desert to a motel someplace, any place. It was more or less a freestanding unit, had a Coca-Cola machine. I would have in the car a loaf of bread, a jar of peanut butter, and a carton of cigarettes, and a whole flock bag full of quarters. I'd see the Coke machine, the dumpy motel, I'd pull in, pay three days in advance, say, don't send a maid, don't do anything, go to the room, turn on the TV, eat bread and peanut butter, smoke cigarettes, and when it got dark, sneak out and get Cokes and drink those. And I would throw the keys when I made the decision out into a field someplace where I couldn't find them drunk. And when I dried out, and I had all the exciting things that happen to people when they're drying out, I had the room full of bears and the room floor full of scorpions and all kinds of crap. DTs, whatnot, convulsions, and so forth. After that wonderful experience, I would go out in the field Rubbing around. What are you doing out there? Well, I lost my car keys. Why did you lose them over there? Well, I was taking a walk. And find a car keys, fire up the car, go back, and go another period of time without drinking, then do it over again. One drink would make me feel better. I knew I had to have a drink. I had to have it right now. I had to have all the liquor in the world. I could not stand it. I've been a period of time without a drink. 
maybe six, eight, ten weeks or something of that sort. I was married. I lived in St. Petersburg. I ran a business. You know, before I, I, I drank because I had too much business, now I drank because I didn't have enough. Before I drank because I had a wife, now I drank because I didn't have one, and so forth and so forth. It makes perfect sense to me. So I got a business, I got another wife. I was without the drink for a long period of time, relatively, and I had to have one. And I knew it would be my last one. I knew I would drink myself to death. There wasn't enough liquor in the world to satisfy me at that point in time. I laid out a scheme. The scheme was to go to a place in Nevada where I could drink myself to death and nobody would bother me. There is such a place. And I had to get there and I didn't want to wait till I get there, got there to drink. I had to have a chauffeur drive me there so I could drink in the car. But the chauffeur would have to understand that when I was doing all this drinking, it would be okay. Where would I find such a chauffeur? In Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course. Certainly. That's the place where people understand drunk. I didn't know anything else about it except that. Bunch of bums that understand drunk. What a terrific deal. So I call Alcoholics Anonymous. I say, how do I get to Alcoholics Anonymous? How do I meet somebody? They said, go to a meeting. I said, where's the meeting? They told me. I thought it was like a board meeting or some damn thing, but it was at a church. Three and a half miles from my home. It was at eight o'clock. So I said to the wife at five o'clock, the Wolverine. I stayed away from her because she kept saying, don't drink so much, don't drink so much. You know how they are. Terrible. So consequently, I said, I am going to Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, good. I said, I have to go now because I don't want to be late for the meeting. You know, five o'clock. The meeting was in three hours. It was three and a half miles. I would drive very slowly. So I drove very slowly, all right, to the nearest liquor store. And bought $440 worth of booze and put in the trunk of my car. On my way to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, with an honest desire to get drunk. I didn't touch it. I left it in the trunk. I wanted to be alert. Are the right man. I got there. And it was a meeting, some of the speakers meeting like this, when they had the 12 steps on the wall, or rather on a little iron grail, and you know, thing, bottom of Catholic Church. And this guy got up, and he told the story. And the only thing I conclude, conclude, could conclude by looking at him was that he better stop drinking right goddamn well, because he was a very sick man. He was blue, and he didn't have any hair. And he said, oh, I feel great. You know, I stopped drinking a year ago. I feel great. And I thought, holy Christopher, that guy better keep stopped. It's all over for him, you know. And uh, when the thing ended, I started walking out, and I'd watch the people. And it was a, a mixed meeting. There were very poor people there, and people of some substance. Most of the people of substance, the way I was dressed and everything, they felt, I remember this first guy sat down with a guy, in front of a guy, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, you're Al-Anon. I said, of course. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Does your wife have a problem? I said, you bet, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I had the Gucci loafers, and the, you know, the suits, the whole nine yards. So anyway, so I was walking out, I see this guy, he, he's a shade, kind of like a fellow in his room, and couldn't afford blades, I guess, and, uh, you know, clopping along, flipping flops, and all that, and sagging. And I walk up to him and I say, hey, buddy, he looks up the feet. He says, yeah. And I said, that's pretty good shit they talk about in there. And he says, yeah. I said, you know, we got to have a drink to talk it over. He said, where do we get? I said, in the trunk of that car. I got anything you want. Get it. Bourbon. Scott. Grand Demet. Rum. Anything you want in the trunk of that car. He said, in the trunk of that car? I said, yep. He said, why don't you spill it out? And I looked at that poor little guy, 
And I ask myself the question, if he can say that, why the hell can't I say that? And I said to him, I asked him, I said, okay, buddy, what the hell am I supposed to do next? He said, go, get 1024 Central Avenue tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, and they'll tell you where it's really at. It's a place in St. Petersburg. So, and he said, and don't drink between now and then. First clue. Go to a meeting the next night and don't drink between meetings. But I didn't know that. Anyway, I said, thank you, and I didn't mean it. And I got in the car and I drove home. He said, how was AA? And I said, yeah. And the next night, I went to 1024 Central Avenue with the express desire to hire a more cooperative chauffeur. <laughs> the guy got up and made a talk. And I was absolutely convinced this individual was as insane as it was possible to get. Because he was happy. He had not had a drink for four and one half years. He had a Cadillac. He had a pickup truck. He had a boat. He had a house. It had two air conditioners. He had a wife. He had 40 pairs of shoes. He had 40 pairs of shoes. And he had two dogs. And he owed money on every single one of those items, including the wife. <laughs> Big sobriety, wonderful. But the fact is, he was happy. I could feel the fact, I could feel that when he talked, and he hadn't had a drink for four and a half years. And the best I was able to do it after I got started was a year and a half. And I sure wasn't happy at the end of that year and a half. And that was the beginning, because during the course of that talk, he mentioned the fact the sponsor had done certain things for him. And when he finished, he came off the podium, and I stood up in my tower of arrogance because I was the best dressed man in the room. You know, I hadn't had a drink for weeks. I was able to stand up, take nourishment. Still weighed 185 pounds. Mm, tiger. Said, uh, what's the sponsor? Somebody to show you the ropes in the end. Mm. Well, will you do that for me? <clears throat> we'll try it. And he said, if you do what I ask you to do for 90 days, you'll never have to take another drink for as long as you live. Well, sports fans, that was true. I didn't believe it then, but I know it to be true now. But thereby hangs the tail. Nobody in this room ever has to take another drink for as long as they live. That's the good news. The bad news is that most of us will. Why? For the reason that I got sober in 1969. I got sober as a means to an end. I got sober to handle a very difficult and sticky, wicked California device of divorce, rather, under the old law. I was a materialist from the word get-go. I was a child of depression. The only capital crime for a child of depression is being broke. No woman was going to take away from me what I had worked so hard to get. I got sober to defeat her. I got sober to defeat my enemies in business. I got sober to improve my health. 
I got sober to avoid the consequences of drinking. I did not get sober for its own sake. When I came into AA, bluntly, I was an extremely fortunate man because I looked upon it in a peculiar way. The peculiar way was I had not I was not drunk at my first meeting, I was not hung over at my first meeting, I was not sick at my first meeting. I drove a far better car than anybody else in AA. I lived in a far better home than most of the people in AA. I had a wife, I had a business, I had money, I had everything I needed and everything I wanted. Kind of a game. You know, when a person plays a game, they're very serious about it. They want to win the game. Initially, I looked at it that way. And I did every single thing that individual told me to do, no matter how crazy it was. Because it was a game. Slowly but surely, I began to realize it was not a game at all. But it all made sense. The things he asked me to give up, the things he asked me to stop doing, the things he asked me to do, the places he asked me to go, it all made sense. What I was doing was following a drill, building a foundation. for the greatest adventure I'd ever experienced in my lifetime. Very short time after this guy started helping me, he was promoted to something and he went to Alaska. I got another sponsor. It had been his sponsor. The guy had been in AA 33 years. Sober at that time. 32 years. Called by the name of Charlie Williams. And immediately, the first question he asked me, he said, uh, Well, John, how come you came to this meeting alone? Where is your pigeon? Now, you got to remember, this is a while back in a very clever area of this country. I mean, people are very clever in, you know, this area to Pinellas County and places like that, Miami. Anyway, so I said, uh, well, I'm not ready yet to do that, Charlie. I've only been sober 90 days or whatever the hell it was. You must get one immediately. Start tomorrow. Do it now. Now, in the course of following the first guy's path, I had divested myself of my business. I had divested myself of my second wife. I had divested myself of my home. I had divested myself of a whole lot of things. I didn't have a hell of a lot to do. So I came to a room, went to a room. It's very similar to this one. It was in Clearwater. It was called the Serenity Club. At that time, they didn't, you know, I paid the dues and whatnot, but they'd let you bring people in who didn't pay the dues. And what I did was I went there, and I sat there all day. When the phone rang, I went. With somebody, without somebody. And I talked to the people who said they wanted to get sober. And I listened to the stories of people who said they wanted to get sober. And every time I did that, I started seeing myself. And then I knew it was no game. And then I knew it was me. These people were bankrupt. Some of them were very wealthy. Lived on golf courses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one guy, I remember, I was talking to Tom about uh, just tonight. This one guy, I said, why are you drunk in this condition? Blah, 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 blah. Remember, at this time, I thought, hey, if you were rich, you know, you were pretty well off. I thought it was very important to be rich. This guy was rich. And he said, because I have a house on a golf course. That's why I drink. 
If I didn't have a house on the Gulf, I wanted one all my life. And I finally got it. He was the guy who had the patent on the hydraulic valve lifters for General Motors. If I didn't have this house on the golf course, I would not be in this condition. Anyway, it was like me. I didn't know until I was in AA for a spell that I drank because I drank because I drank because I drank. I was an alcoholic. He didn't know that either. He died about four days later. Drunk. In a very nice suite in Meese Hospital in Clearwater. From that day to this, by doing this every day, doing what Charlie Williams told me to do, and I quote, John, work the fellowship. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship. Work the fellowship. And you will take the steps. Just like it says in the big book. Here are the steps we took. So I worked the fellowship. And from that day to this, I've had an obsession to drink twice. Both in my third year of sobriety. And I'm going to tell you about those two times because they're significant. I went to Alaska to see my sponsor, and it's a visit. And I was about out of money, but I went anyway. But while there, I determined I was out of money. So unbeknownst to him, I went to British Petroleum and I filed an application and they put me in a competition for a certain job on the North Slope. And it was a pretty good job, a big job. So I left there and returned and took the job. Unbeknownst to my sponsor, former sponsor who was on the my first sponsor who was living in Alaska doing something else. The job was two weeks on the slope, two weeks in Anchorage. I came off the slope after about uh, maybe the third time or fourth time. Yeah, about the fourth time I came off. I went to a meeting in Anchorage. It was a large table. It was in the Teamsters Hospital there. A very nice structure, very nice room, very shiny table, almost from here to the end of this room. People sitting all around it. They had a meeting. Every single person said, I was drunk and I was destitute, in effect. I was drunk and I was destitute, and now I'm not drinking. And then they would make a statement of their net worth, post, you know, liquid money, near money and frozen assets and then the next person would do the same thing and the next person would do the same thing and it was a kind of conversation that took place which I witnessed many years many times in expense account restaurants all over the world and about halfway through that meeting I saw a shot glass in the middle of the table filled with Jack Daniels and I wanted it right then and I got up in the middle of the meeting went to the airport and took the first plane out to anywhere fortunately it went to the United States not to Japan or someplace <laughs> and that brings me to the core of the matter Clarence Snyder used to say, and he said it many times, if you ever heard his tapes, you'll hear him say it. His later tapes. Alcoholics are not people. I am not a people. The things that satisfy normal people do not satisfy me. All my life, up until 
the third or fourth year in Alcoholics Anonymous, I lived what I thought to be a normal life. I imitated normal people. Normal people wanted this, normal people wanted that, normal people wanted something else. I made believe I wanted this, I wanted that, and I wanted something else. But it was never enough. I always wanted something more. I can't believe. I traded cards every three or four months. Something more, something more, something more, something better, something bigger, something greater. I can't believe I did that. But I did. But the fact is that nothing material would ever satisfy my wants or needs because I am an alcoholic and I am not a people. Normal people are satisfied with enough. I have conversations now with people who have been sober many, many years. Discussions of what is enough. Should I retire now, John? Do I have enough? The fact is, the guy had enough 20 years ago. What this is about is being satisfied in a way in which I cannot put my finger or describe. Oh, we say, well, it's spiritual, it's not religious. Ricky Tick, you know, define spiritual. Go ahead. Well, uh, mm, it's a belief in God. Well, God ain't going to do my laundry. The thing is, <laughs> the thing is, that when you get to the tail end of the big book, it says a lot of things about the rewards of surprise. You know, fears of financial insecurity will leave you. That's one of the little things on page 84, 85. Let's read it. You know, that's one little thing. Not that financial insecurity will leave me, but fears of it will leave me. And that has been true in my case. Several times since I've been in here, I've been down to 25 cents. Net worth. Net worth. Several times since I've been in here, I've responded to the challenge. John, if you're so damn smart, why ain't you rich? And I went out to get rich. And in the process, this absolutely determined that being rich would not make me content. Being rich would not give me the benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to tell you what those benefits are. First, it is the best form of health insurance on the face of this earth. You need never fear a lingering, horrible death. <coughs> Practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. No one ever finishes taking that 12th step. No one. <coughs> well, I've taken the 12 steps right here in California. I don't have to go to so many meetings. <coughs> Where do you get to carry the message? If it isn't in this room, this room, this is not something that I phone in. It is not a spectator, spectator sport. It's a matter of my well-being that I be in this room, that I come 1,200 miles to be in this room. Not to make these damn speeches, but to talk to one person, one person, one person. Because I'm not a people. The kind of food I need, they don't sell in the store. The kind of food I need is spiritual. Based upon 
whatever it's been, almost 15 years, you take the number of days, you multiply that by two, that would about cover the number of meetings I've attended. 15 times 365.2 times two. I know many, many thousands of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know many of them very intimately. And based upon that experience, I am convinced alcoholics are essentially spirits. They do not like the kind of conversation that says, How much do you have? What are you doing now, George? Well, I'm working at Kodak. What sort of pension plan do they have, George? They have a good pension plan. Where are you working, Bill? I am working at IBM. They have a very good pension plan. And so forth. They do not like that. That does not satisfy them one bit. What satisfies an alcoholic in life is altruism. We are children of God. We are not junk. As they say, look at the label. We are children of God. What do the children of God do? What does any child do? I'm a product here of the grace of God. That incident that led me into Alcoholics Anonymous has absolutely convinced me that that was a miracle. Blessed upon me by God that I did not get the chauffeur and start drinking on my way to Nevada. But that was a miracle. The rest of it is devotion. Devotion to this organization, or the lack thereof, this outfit. Devotion to one other person. When I came in here, I guarantee that I love nobody. Not my children, nobody. Not my wife, nobody. And coming in here is not a business, although it's cheap to say. I'm in here to love myself. When I learn to love myself, then I can love someone else. What's it? I'm in here to learn to love you. And you. And you. That's why I remember so many names. That's why I'm in here. And the way I learned that was by people loving me. When I came in here. And the longer I'm in here, the more love I feel for every single individual in here, no matter how bad off they are, no matter how fucked up they are. No matter how much they dislike me, and I'm disliked a great deal, many quarters probably here if you guys will lose me tonight. What the hell is the difference? The thing is, that this is the spiritual food that keeps this alcoholic alive. Why do I no longer have an obsession to drink? Even though I'm still powerless over alcohol, and I'm not kidding myself, why do I not ever have an obsession to drink and haven't had one in 12 years? Not because I feel good about myself. You know, when I felt good about myself, going down the Hollywood freeway in a 230SL with a beautiful scarlet seated in the beside me on my way to a nice party and the girl was not my wife. Top was down. Everybody knew I felt good about myself. No. Because I feel good right now. Today is the best day of my life. And up until the day yesterday was. And before that the day before was. Nothing I could take, nothing I could do, would make me feel better than I do right now. I can't imagine feeling better than I do right now. So why bother? I can't, I won't take a drink. But the place where I get that feeling is in this room. And I was like, So everybody does what they have to do 
But if you get nothing else from what I've said tonight, remember this. Sobriety is not a means to an end. It is an end in itself. but in accordance with the seventh tradition, we attempt to remain self-supporting, and in order to do that, we pass the basket, we'll start that right now, uh, any AA announcements? Anybody here from out of town tonight would like to, uh, yes? Anybody else from out of town? Nobody. Thank everybody who came, and thank uh, John for 
covering 2,200 miles to make a 1,200-mile trek to be here tonight. Um, that, in and of itself, is the story, which I will not bore you with the details of, because I don't know the details. So uh, uh, that secret will be safe. Um, and if we have nothing further, we can uh, close with the Lord's Prayer, please.